Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. The month is May, the year 2022. I'm coming to you with an encore presentation of this classic episode of The Third Story, which was originally recorded in early 2020, just before COVID, just before the world changed, just before we were all sent back to our rooms. I went to visit the great recording engineer and producer Bob Power in his studio in Manhattan to talk about his life and his work. This is one of the great classic episodes from the archive. There are hundreds. You can revisit all of them at third-story.com. But actually, the reason I'm here today with this encore presentation is because it's one of a small handful of episodes that are being rerun during the month of May to celebrate the new partnership between the Third Story Podcast and WBGO Studios. So if the feeling moves you, if you are so inclined, you could visit wbgo.org studios to check out our new Third Story WBGO profile and listen to some of these other wonderful episodes that we're running this month. Starting in June, I'll be back with all new episodes in conjunction with listener-supported WBGO Studios. Until then, please enjoy this classic episode of the podcast with the great Bob Power. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. What do A Tribe Called Quest, The Roots, D'Angelo, Erica Badu, Michelle Indigiocello, India Ari, Jay Dilla, Jason Moran, and Theo Croker have in common? Oh, and Common, that's another one. And Ozo Motley and De La Soul. Pharrell Williams, Miles Davis, Most Deaf, Macy Gray, Curtis Mayfield, David Byrne, Spike Lee, Big Daddy Kane, Maceo Parker, Pat Metheny, The Jungle Brothers, and Quincy Jones, and Run DMC. What do all of these artists have in common? They all benefited from the sound of Bob Powers recording, mixing, and in some cases, production. I remember picking up CD after CD when I was coming up and seeing Bob's name. He certainly influenced me, but on a larger scale, he had a profound effect on the sound of hip-hop and modern music in general. Despite the fact that he tells me he learned early on from working in television that if someone notices your work, you're probably screwed, I did notice what he was doing, and I think a lot of people did. Bob started out as a musician. He has degrees in classical composition and in jazz performance, and he spent his early professional years both gigging and composing music for television. He was 30 years old and living in San Francisco when he decided to move to where the action was in the music business at that time, New York. He was working as a jingle composer and gigging as a guitarist when he ended up falling into an unexpected opportunity as a recording engineer for some early hip-hop sessions, which would end up reorienting his career. He says he thinks he was one of the few people in the recording establishment who took the new music, rap, hip-hop, seriously and cared enough to make it as good as possible, even though it was being made in this new way, using samples, drum machines, and a lot of intuition. He tells me, great music is made by people who either don't care or don't understand what is normal, so they do something extraordinary. And he says, in popular music, wrong has become right, and we love it. Talking to Bob, I got the sense that his contribution has been twofold. Part of it is indeed the sound that he gets. It's undeniable that his records have a sound. It's in the depth of his mixes. It's the way that they feel fat and round and present and deep and forward at the same time. He tells me just being able to hear everything in a mix is a lifetime of study. But the other part of what he offers in the room is his way It's his personality, and it's this aspect of production that I often wonder about. Can it be taught? Can it be learned? Bob was happy to talk to me about his technical approach, the way he thinks about recording, mixing, mastering, but he was equally happy, maybe even more so, to talk about pop sociology, Marshall McLuhan, Malcolm Gladwell, Tim Leary, and larger cultural trends of the last 50 years. He says, when it comes to the state of the art in electronic media, the bar is set very high. So making things fluid in the creative atmosphere is really the thing. Making things fluid. I suppose that's the non-technical part. That's the part that really only happens through one's personal development. Bob teaches at NYU, and hearing him talk about his students, I got the impression that teaching and producing are related to him. He says to me, I want my students to see that there are all different flavors of good. And he says, a lot of artists want to show all of the different things they can do. No, show the one thing that you do that is totally yours and no one else can do, and then find every way in the world to exploit it and enrich it. This conversation is both granular and global. There's quite a bit of tech talk, but there's also a lot of big picture thinking going on here. 
I arrived at Bob's studio in Manhattan's Flatiron District in time to watch him finishing a mastering project. This conversation finds us talking in his room just after he finishes his mastering project. Bob had set up two Shure SM57 microphones and instructed me on how to hold it in order to avoid strong P's and plosives. I pushed back on him a little bit and asked for a different mic, but he insisted that I just needed to hold it differently, and that's where we start. Here's me and Bob Power talking it down. Bob Power, I'm going to take your advice. I'm here to study. I'm here to learn. Side angle, 57 technique. Sure you, you talk straight. Yeah. The funny thing about this is all yeah. our lives were taught from the beginning. Yes. You know, when you're on a microphone, make sure you're speaking into the microphone. Yes. So this kind of belies that whole thing. Yes. It's going to take me a minute to adjust, but I, I'm here to learn. Cool. So am I. You know, here's what I want to, I guess, start out by saying. This is going to sound charming to you because you're even a little older than I am. But when I got started, it was a lot. <laughs> it was the time when you would buy an album and bring it home, or a CD and bring it home and open it up. And when you listen to the records, you'd you know you'd read the names of the people who were on them. And when I was coming up, there was a series of albums that it seemed like every time I peeled back the cover to see who was behind it, there was this name, Bob Power. It's funny. Um because I teach a lot now, when I talk to my students, and I think about this a lot too, it's much harder to get famous now because no one sees your name. Yes. And that's sort of made, I think that made my career a lot uh, was people seeing my name on records. And yeah. if my career had happened 20 something years later, it wouldn't have happened that way. I want to talk about how your name ended up on those records because, you know, as a kid in Madison, Wisconsin, reading the liner notes of these, you know, Tribe Called Quest and then The Roots and then D'Angelo and Erica Badu and Michelle and Digiocello, one after another, there you were. You said it right. Good. Is that the order? No, Michelle and Digiocello. People have oh. a, a, such a hard time with yeah. that. Well, it's spelled so in yeah. such an unusual way. Yeah. And, you know, it's easy to sort of imagine, well, who is this Bob Power guy and how did he end up on all these records? And when I started to kind of look into your background, it seems like it's a little unexpected. Like you wouldn't necessarily expect the career that you had given how you started. No, not at all. I mean, I, I was a working musician for 20 something years. Um, when I started doing records, I was still doing club dates for people who don't know club dates are, is a New York expression for weddings and bar mitzvahs mm -hmm. where you may know the people you're playing with. You may not, mm -hmm. but everybody knows 10,000 songs and can play them in any key. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, on Saturday nights, the guys knew they'd lose me about six o'clock and my tuxedo and my guitar and my amp were in the back of the room. And I'd take the subway way out into the wilds of Brooklyn, get to the catering hall, play a mafia wedding, mm -hmm. and then come back to the studio the next morning. Mm -hmm. Part of that was me just having made a living as a player for so long that I wasn't ready to let go of that. I mean... The real chronology, okay. Played bad rock guitar by ear in high school, very bad. Um, mostly stood there and turned the amp up and looked cool. Did my undergrad at Webster University in St. Louis, but they had a classical conservatory. I didn't know enough to be intimidated, so I signed up to be a theory and composition major. And what got me through that was there were a bunch of people who'd been playing classical piano since they were three mm -hmm. and i just looked around and i said they're not that smart mm -hmm. you can do this so uh, i got a degree in classical composition and theory moved to san francisco in the mid 70s uh got a break my family has been in the television business so i got a break doing some scoring for television plus i ended up getting my master's there and studying jazz and i really at that point just thought i wanted to be a jazz guitar player mm -hmm. moved back to new york in 82 because i was 30 and i said you got to move to la or to new york I had most of my close friends were in New York. Most of the people I believe it or not, most of the people I knew in the business were in New York because the business was here a lot then. Mm -hmm. Came here, started all over again. At um, 30? Yeah, yeah. Took every gig I possibly could. Anybody who's a working musician has gazillion stories about mm -hmm. ridiculous gigs mm -hmm. they played. Was kicking around, was producing vanity records for people. Um, 
I wasn't engineering at that point. Uh, I, you know, hmm. in San Francisco, I used to like record people's jazz trios through their PVPA board. Mm -hmm. I just was always fascinated by it. And when I was doing television stuff, I was working with some really fantastic, super fast engineers. Mm -hmm. So I was always full of questions. I'm like, why are you doing that? Why are you using that compressor? And you were scoring a couple of shows yeah. for PBS. Yeah. Underscores. And I wrote the theme for this one show called Over Easy. Yeah. So I'm back in New York and I'm doing every shit gig imaginable. And I, I mean like schlepping my 70 pound two track reel to reel to someone's uncle's living room for their Juilliard audition tape mm -hmm. for $60, you know, and, and 15 of that was the taxi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was also trying to get into the jingle world. I started doing a bunch of industrials, corporate communication shows, which was a huge business and still is quite a big business. Mm -hmm. Um, a friend of mine was a producer, so I started uh, getting gigs for QTEX. You know, they'd have these big sales meetings, and mm -hmm. they'd spend fifty, seventy, eighty, hundred thousand dollars on a big stage extravaganza. Mm -hmm. Sometimes with major talent, mm -hmm. and I was trying to work my way into jingles as well, which started around the mid 80s mid to late 80s but around 85 or so i was working overnight at a studio called calliope i've told this story a lot of times yeah. but, um, but you have to tell it it's where the whole thing starts i wasn't doing my own engineering at the time and uh the guy who engineered for me was going away on vacation so the owner said to me do you want to fill in and it was one of those moments where i said oh, i really don't know what i'm doing but I then, yes i can do that so that was it. And it was one of the least expensive studios in town. So we were getting a lot of music from the streets, mm -hmm. up, a lot of house music at that time. But a typical day for me then. And I got popular. Um, I got popular. I don't know if I was the best engineer. I was certainly passionate about it. And I think my musicianship informed, as it does everything in my career, informed everything in terms of my engineering. So I had things in my head. I said, they should sound like this because that's what good music sounds like. Mm -hmm. um, no one ever taught me, well, if you put the mic here, that'll happen. And that I had to figure out myself. Um, and a typical day for me there would be like from 10 to 2 or 10 to 3, I do a live jazz quartet to two-track date piano bass drums and vocals and we'd all be in headphones in the control room mm -hmm. and then like a latin dance record because uh club music was really big at that time house and there was a, a lot of latin club music going on in new york at the time all sp12 mm -hmm. all emu sp12 drum machine and then in the evening i do a hip-hop record until like midnight or one in the morning ride my bike home and get up and come back in at 10 o'clock the next morning and do the same thing all over you when you started scoring and working in production in san francisco and then the early years here you know it seems like it's it starts before there are drum machines or computers yeah yeah um when i was scoring tv midi was just starting and this was uh 75 76 it was a specification at that point but for example um i wanted a dx7 when they came yeah. out or profit yeah. uh i couldn't afford them so i got a juno 60 and if you know anything about the lineage, it didn't have a MIDI port at that mm -hmm. point. It had a DCB, digital communications bus. Like everything Roland did, they wanted to reinvent the wheel their way. Yep. So, yeah, MIDI was just starting. And I have to say, one of the fascinating things about when I got to New York and why I think I worked a lot, both as an engineer and as a composer for jingles and scores, was pretty quickly I figured out MIDI, like what it was doing. And it was very, very, very primitive back then. Mm -hmm. So if you could do impressive sounding stuff, then people would say, oh, I want you around. Yeah. Plus, I used to tell assistants this all the time. As an engineer, if you want to move up quickly back then, learn MIDI really well, because people would bring stuff in they were doing standalone at home so mm -hmm. they didn't have to interface with any other pieces of gear mm -hmm. i said but if in the studio if you're the guy that can make everything work they'll ask for you every time mm -hmm. and you think that's part of why they were asking for you because you understood the technology part i think i refuse to lose to technology mm -hmm. you know i think that's the most ridiculous thing in the world you still feel that way does that still guide yeah, you yeah um let's put it this way i get pissed when i lose to technology 
the early days of MIDI were the Wild West. Like, stuff did not work. Yeah. Stuff did not do what it was supposed to do. And we used to have this expression, flip some dip switches and hope for the best. Those little tiny switches on the back of the things. And they used to have in the manual, if you're interfacing with a Sony piece of gear, mm. switch two and six should be up. If you're interfacing with a Panasonic piece of gear, and on and on and on. So stuff didn't really work. Uh, one of the early players in MIDI interfaces between the computer and your MIDI gear, now everything comes out of the computer, mm -hmm. but in those days you needed something to translate between com the computer and the synthesizer. Mm -hmm. There was a company called Southworth, hmm. which was a major player. They made the really nicest stuff. It was a little more expensive than every everybody else's but one engineer i worked with <laughs> called it the note motel you mm -hmm. know that um commercial for the roach motel mm -hmm. roaches check in but he said notes check in but they don't, they don't check come out, out. They, don't, they don't make it back out <laughs> so right so it was a kind of mysterious thing and but then the other aspect of what was happening was that you fell in with a crew of people that were innovating in hip-hop yeah and that was you know again we were the cheapest studio in town. That's where the most interesting music on the way up comes through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd been involved in black music all my life, really. And so I was used to working in the black community. But when hip hop came around, it was a little bit different because the studios in New York had been integrated for years. You know, L.A., there were two separate musicians unions until I think the early 60s, mm. even. But in New York, because of jazz and stuff, mm -hmm. the studios had been integrated for a long time. I will say at that point, and still to some degree, the technical establishment in studios was and to a certain degree still is a white male boys club and that needs to change mm -hmm. but it is there are exceptions and that's changing but at that time that's really what it was so all these people were used to sort of the jazz vernacular and the jazz way of being and they were used to people being incredible musicians yes but they go hey man what's up what's happening how you doing oh that's hip you know when i said that's hip to hip-hop crews they would laugh at me and they go my parents say that um <laughs> but there were a bunch of kids coming in that dressed differently that talked talk differently, that walk differently, and made music radically differently. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the engineering establishment at that point said, I don't want to do this. This shit's not music. And mm -hmm. I don't understand those kids anyway. Mm -hmm. um, if racism in a certain way is fear of the unknown, then that was definitely in effect at that point. So my point about the studios mm -hmm. here was it wasn't that they were black, it was that they were talking differently, there was a whole different language yeah. and a whole different way of making music. And a lot of people, a lot of old school guys said, that shit's not music, I'm not gonna do that. Um, and, did you, and how did you feel about it? I was like, this is really challenging. Yeah. And I love a challenge. The quickest way to get me to do something is to say, you don't think we can do it. Mm -hmm. And I, I really liked the people that came through. You know, I wasn't in, uh, in the milieu of a gang of knuckleheads. The people I worked with were really intelligent, aware people. And I was learning stuff all the time about the gear. And I was solving problems for yeah. them. I was helping make their records that they wanted to make and trying to make sure that nothing got in the way of that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if, you know, I don't, disagree or doubt what you talk about that for the establishment that these people that were making this music just seemed like they were from another planet yeah but also as an engineer all of the stuff that you were kind of trained to do it didn't apply right i mean if you're mixing well samples, i wasn't i wasn't trained right so so um, in your case it was it served you well yeah but trained. it was you know it was my jazz head that got me yeah. through which was basically not there's nothing wrong there are no wrongs yeah there's only not making it work mm -hmm. so why don't you figure out a, a way to make this work yeah and i i thought the challenge was fascinating and what did you see as the challenge making the technology work and making the music come out in a really lively animated way yeah. as cool as any other kind of record that you'd ever heard rather yeah. than just sort of pressing record and saying I'll let the kids do what they want mm -hmm. I don't you know it, it, it'll be it'll record it'll be okay yeah. no it's not okay no do the best job you can respect the music and you know give it your all to make the music come alive that's what we all do in any kind of music mm -hmm. How did you feel? What did you think about the way samples were being used, particularly with your jazz background and the way they were 
chopping up and repurposing jazz music? Uh, you know, um, a lot of people felt, you know, wait a minute, that's not theirs to use. Well, it got that got worked out. Yeah. Uh, legally and financially, that got worked out. But in the early days, the moral thing didn't enter into it for me. But when I saw the amazing constructions that these people who, quote unquote, didn't know what they were doing... Mm-hmm we're making i was like holy shit this this stuff's really amazing yeah. what a what a novel way of conceiving and executing music and these are some really interesting challenges of making it work in the studio you know because i i sort of have made a lot of different kinds of music in the studio the approach to how you go about it is a little bit different for each one and at that point again specifically because the technology was so primitive I was like, wow, this is a really interesting problem. How are we going to make this stuff work? Do you recognize the sound of what you did as contributing to the sound of what happened to hip hop? I guess. I think the sound of what I did and its contribution was that I gave a shit. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I applied the same rules of something sounding really good to hip hop as I would to any other kind of music. And I think a lot of people at that point were just pressing the button saying, I hate this shit, but you know, let me get paid. Yeah. I think that it worked because I cared. Yeah. No, I'm hearing you say that over and over again. And I have to say, I mean, before we started this conversation, I watched you mastering something and you cared to a degree that I maybe have never seen in a mastering session before about questions that most mastering people would just say, well, you know what? The mix is a little bit of a mess. And so this is the best I can do. Yeah. I can't polish a turd, whatever, you know, you know it's one of the advantages to having my own studio. The other thing is, uh, I know within, there has to be a quote unquote within reason clause to everything. Yeah. But, um, I I said this to you before. Yeah. I I didn't get paid because I was fast. I'm very fast setting up. I believe that that when you're recording music with live musicians on the floor, you need to get to work as quickly as possible. And everybody who works in the studios knows this. Mm-hmm. But in terms of mixing and mastering and stuff, the people didn't come to me because I was fast. People came to me because it sounded good. And so, you generally always work, as soon as you could, you worked out of your own spaces. Yeah, I'm very. I've been very happy mixing in my own room. I I don't think i've mixed on a console in at least 15 years maybe more um in a big room you know it's so funny i don't miss that at all everything is so much easier now Mm -hmm. so much easier stuff used to just be very difficult and very very expensive the studios cost a couple thousand dollars a day and if they wanted to do a recall i had to truck all my gear back in Mm -hmm. and the setup took six hours with the recall because we use so much outboard gear. Now, uh, everything that happens in the box sounds very, very good if you know what to do with it. There was a time until about four or five years ago, you had to work a lot harder. But in the last four or five years, plugins have gotten so much better. In part, I think also because the 32-bit internal mm-hmm. uh, audio architecture is just everything sounds better. The the flip to 24-bit from 16-bit, which I believe was the mid-90s or mm-hmm. so, that made a huge difference. Yes. Um, and, you know, on paper, bit structure only really affects dynamic range. Well, I'm sorry. In the way it sounds, everything just sounds fuller, bigger, more full range. Yeah. And there seems to be a fuller frequency content, even though technically that's sampling right. rate. But those early records, were those two-inch yeah, analog oh, they, records? Yeah, that yeah. was two-inch. Yeah, yeah, that was tape. That was tape. You know, one of the things that I think about is how if the first round of those hip-hop records that you were making was a kind of way to take samples and drum machines and bring, you know, you say I, you gave a shit, but I think part of what happened is that you brought a kind of musicality to mixing electronic elements and technology that felt alive yeah yeah the next thing that happens is that musicians start playing their instruments influenced by sample based records and then you have another chance to imbue these live instruments with some of the values that you learned from working with samples yeah it's funny um you know pop will eat itself and right. it's it's definitely a circle of something's influenced by something else yes. and it's influenced by something else it's funny i just always felt 
just like jazz, there's no bad notes, there's yeah. only bad resolutions. Um, I always felt like, wow, what an interesting, yeah. different way of putting music together. And some of it I thought, oh, this is good. And some of it I thought, oh, this is okay. Just like any other kind of music. I mean, did you recognize that? I'm thinking like, for example, when the Roots showed up playing and you made those drums sound dirtier and f- and kind of, in some cases, noisier than you normally would as if they were a sample. Well, the, the stuff came in. Yeah you know in a certain way i was never one to add noise to anything right even though my clients did from time to time right but the thing about the roots that first record the thing that came out to me as was this music is really aggressive Hmm. and muscular and not aggressive in a fuck you way but aggressive musically so let me let me just treat it as such let me make and i understood also that they were hip-hop heads and they were doing live tracks so i said you know what these live tracks better have the muscle, mm-hmm. which by then hip hop records had incredible muscle. Mm-hmm. I said these live tracks better have the same muscle as a hip hop track. Mm-hmm. So we have to do whatever is necessary to give it that kind of. Yeah, I don't even remember. You know, I yeah. was learning what I was doing. Yeah. I'm much better now, but huh. but I was exploring and trying to find things. Sometimes you did records where you were mixing. Sometimes you were recording and mixing. Sometimes you were producing. Sometimes you were playing guitar on the records. Would you draw any kind of distinction when you went into these projects? Do you now? This is my lane. This is my role. Well, I'm very conscious of what one's role is sitting in a particular chair. Um, that's that's one thing that I just learned from my early days of working in the studios in any capacity was do the job that you're there to do. Don't do somebody else's job just because you may think you know better. Part of it was being around television as well most of my life is that you're part of a team. And if you know if someone notices your work, you're probably screwed hmm. because you're supposed to just be transparent in service of the the overall thing. And with the hip hop records, you know, I had two music degrees. I knew my way around music really well. And I had people come in stabbing at a keyboard with one finger trying to find one note that was possibly somewhat in tune with the song. Well, it's not my place at that point. It's not my job to go say, oh, no, here, this is what you want. But to do. how do you with all of that musical formation, how do you not? you know bite your nails until down to the nub watching this go down when you know you could do it yourself i guess i if that happened a lot a lot a lot i would not keep doing the sessions yeah but i think it's really important to respect the artists and you know what the thing that makes the artist special maybe is that they don't know the normal way and not maybe but that's that's where all great records are made yes great music is made is people who who either don't care or don't understand quote-unquote normal, and they do something really extraordinary. Yes. Well, and in fact, you're right. I mean, you also worked with us and have worked and continue to work with extraordinary people. Does good work beget good work? I think so. I think so. I think that, yeah, the better your work is, the better work you attract. I think that's that's really true. You know that as a musician. It's kind of like the better you are, the more better gigs usually come yes. your way. Yes. What was your experience of being in the room with D'Angelo on that first record? You know, just trying to get through and make the record. I only produced half of it and then mixed a bunch of the other stuff. Yeah. This was someone who had a radically different way of making music and how to make his record that really sounded like him, but step it up in ways that didn't take away from how incredibly dope and cool the stuff was. Yes. I asked that question in the context of if maybe sometimes you saw people walking in stabbing at a device with one finger you know he seems to be somebody who walked in the door with all of this just natural incredible talent there's a reason why he's viewed as how he is viewed because he's one of the great brilliant minds of soul and funk music ever to come down the pike and a totally different way of doing things sometimes when you make a record you chase the demos because the demos are so incredibly cool but not they're not a record. They're kind of too fucked up to be a record. Mm-hmm. Michelle's eight-track demos and D'Angelo's four-track mm-hmm. cassette demos that they came in with were just so amazingly mm-hmm. cool. So how to make a record and keep the cool stuff but make it sound like a record. Mm-hmm. 
That was the task. Yeah. It's often like that with first time artists who do something radically differently is sort of, how do we make this able to stand up next to other records, any kind of record, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, not lose how cool it is because it's so completely different than the way that other people do things. And Billie Eilish is a perfect example. You're absolutely right. She and her brother, they managed to do that. They managed to do that. Uh, Really radically different way of making music. I've been thinking a lot about that for the last week because we've all been making records in bedrooms and in our own private spaces. And frankly, I mean, we're sitting in your room. This is a kind of hallowed ground in a lot of ways. You've done a lot of work here. And on the other hand, I think most people would probably look at this room and go, it's kind of like my room. Yeah, there's a lot of gear around. And yeah, it's, but not, it's, it's not fancy. It's not a post-production studio where you have soft lighting and all the right colors. No, it's, it's a room with a lot of gear that everything works and we use it. Um, right. Yeah. It's not it's not designed to make you feel particularly cool by being here. It's designed to work. It's a space that clearly work gets done. Yeah. In. When you think of people like Billy Eilish, though, you got to remember Imogen Heap. Absolutely. For example, um, who I don't think in the mainstream ever kind of got enough credit. And uh, what do you think her innovation Meryl was? Meryl Garbus would not be who she is without Imogen Heap. I don't think if Tell- you think about those connections in terms of radically different ways of using vocals yes you know now it's old hat because you can do a plug-in and it'll do all these wild things for you but back in those days you had to do something really it took a lot of work and a lot of thought and it was exactly same thing in the early days of hip-hop it's like wow how can we make the technology do this thing that no one's been able to do with this primitive technology before Mm -hmm. um and you know thinking of uh Uh, Billie Eilish's record with all the naturally occurring sounds um, Alexandre Desplat um, his score to the Widows of Belleville do you know Triplets of Belleville Triplets of Belleville I do know where the score was all pots and pans and stuff Uh like incredible but it's the same kind of thing but if you know that score was kind of meant to be slightly nostalgic and evocative of another time Mm -hmm. what's incredible about what you're noticing about the Billie Eilish record is that it sounds totally new and modern and it sits in the same world as really electronic music. Yeah, and yet it sounds full and rich yeah. and you're not missing anything. Yeah. You're not saying, gee, I wish there was another chordal pad for to fill out the harmonic structure here. But really, I think this is a conversation about limitation also and embracing these limitations. Great artists, this is, I'm not the first person to say great yeah. artists are defined by their limitations. Mm-hmm. You know, and... and if you're a musician, for example, you know, there's a lot of bands that want to show everybody all the different things they could do. No, 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 no. Show the one thing that you do that's yours, totally yours, mm-hmm. and no one else could do that that way. And then find every way in the world, and I use this word in the most positive way, mm-hmm. to exploit that mm-hmm. and uh, enrich that. Mm-hmm. How much of not only your success, but just the success of somebody who, but let's speak about you, we're talking about you, is about, not about the technical aspect of it, but the personal, the the way you are in the room with somebody, the way you deal with the people you work with. Production in any medium, especially electronic media, is a very intense thing, because hmm. Because it's the state of the art in television, in film, mm-hmm. in records, the bar is very high. Hmm. So how to make things fluid in the creative atmosphere is really the thing. Um, and it's it's like teaching as well. You want the the exploration of the information to be fluid. And I won't say the exchange because I consider teaching a journey that I take with my students. So you want that process to be as exciting and have as much forward motion and positivity as you can. Well, it sounds like you see teaching as an outgrowth of production. Yeah, I also, you know, I went to college in 1970. I went to high school in the 60s. -hmm. So um, I have fairly radical ideas about education and engagement. I think that your first order of business in a classroom is to be engaging, is to make sure your students really are get into the thing as much as you are. Mm. Then worry about what you're saying. You know, <laughs> everybody's got different things to say anyway. Everyone will say, no, that's sharp. No, it's not sharp. It's cool. You know, so uh, making the ride exciting is really the deal. And you know what a word that's that's come to me 
that connects to kind of everything in my life is engagement. Mm -hmm. When you're really connected to something, whether you're doing a sport or playing an instrument mm. or talking to somebody or making love with somebody, mm. that total engagement of every fiber of your being in your consciousness is connected to that act at that moment. That's what we all strive for. What's, there's, a, there's a pop psychology book with a one word name that's all about that. Um, and I, I'll think of it by the time we're done. Hmm. What's, you know what I'm talking it's about? It's not the Gladwell book, Blink? Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And there are a number of books about yeah. that, but yeah, he got it in that book. He comes up with some very interesting ideas. I hope he's not listening, but I feel that- <laughs> I, I hope un, he is. Unfortunately, well. everything you need to know about the book is in the preface. Yeah. And then he just says the same thing over and yes. over again in different ways, but yes. everybody knows That's that. That's correct. Yeah. Speaking of pop sociologists, and yes. he's, got, he's got props. I mean, he's, yeah. got, he's, he's a very educated guy. Do you remember Marshall McLuhan? Do you yeah, know I mean, that name? I know the name more sort of by osmosis because he was very influential for my father, particularly uh, a book that my dad wrote in the 70s in which the medium is the message informed the thinking of that book. Yeah, when I was uh, in high school in the 60s, you know, those were the days of Buckminster Fuller mm -hmm. and geodesic domes and mm -hmm. hippies living in teepees in the woods and yeah. stuff like that. And there was a lot of stuff that was really, like Tim Leary is yeah. like, well, that's kind of out there. You know, I might do the same drugs as you, but yeah. you're thinking it's crazy shit. Yeah. Um, Marshall McLuhan was, as far as I know the first quote unquote pop sociologist, someone who wrote books for everybody about big social concepts mm -hmm. like Malcolm Gladwell does and a lot of other people as well. Mm -hmm. But he said a couple of things back then that I was like, well, it's interesting to talk about and think about, but you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And now I think about what he said and a couple of things he said were, number one, electronic communications will make physical distances between people insignificant in terms of their communicating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. True. Uh, telephones, video screens, mm -hmm. iChat, you mm -hmm. know, it doesn't matter if you're not there. It, the experience is the same. The other thing he said was information will be the commodity. That'll mm -hmm. be the thing that'll be most important in the future. And if you think about the nature of digital communications and uh, macro pieces of information, there's a, there's a term for that. I'm spacing on, you know, the big view of data, mm -hmm. uh, big data, Yeah, that information will be the most important and most valued thing in the future. And he's not that wrong about mm -hmm. that. And he also said the medium is the message, meaning that the act of communicating will supersede the in importance what is being communicated itself. And that's social media. Yes. It's like nobody's saying shit, but they're just really engaged with the communication. That's right. Incredibly prescient. I found myself today, somebody called me, I mean, this is a ridiculous digression, but I, you know, I, somebody called me on the phone and I said to them, thank you for saving me for myself. I'm in a social media ditch right now. And I found myself watching three videos at the same time and clicking on a link. And the next thing I know, I lost 15 minutes of my life. And it was like I went into a fugue state. You know, I don't do social media yeah. because I don't have to. Yeah. Uh, and I'm kind of glad. I've spent the last 20 years of my life trying to be private rather than letting know everybody know where I am and what I'm doing all the time. So it's fine. I was... You know, I don't need it for promotion, which is great. Um, I was a little ahead of the curve with my website. I've had a really cool website since the 90s. I think it's since the 90s um, or early, maybe early, mid-2000s. You know, if people want to find me, they can find me there and they know how to find me. That's all I really care about. I, it's just not me. But it's it's, kind, of, it's, it's kind of like a bar. You know, I don't go to bars anymore. I prefer to drink at home alone <laughs> now. Uh, but it is, it's the big virtual bar room. It is the big virtual bar room, absolutely. And it, and it, it is amazing how for a, a younger generation, communication real friendship relationships networking are happening on social media instagram is is a place where people are meeting and collaborating absolutely yet the mode of communication and the kind of riffs that go on kind of leave me a little bit cold and that's just me you know it's just who i am where i am in my life now i don't really care about a lot of the things that many people care about. And again, the act of being famous is much more important than what you actually do. And I'm not, you know, whatever, man. It's cool for people who want that. But, you know, people are now famous for being famous. Totally. It's so funny. Agreed. And also, you know, it's hard to have these conversations and not ask, are we 
the equivalent of the old folks in 1988 or 89 listening to a tribe or 90, whatever, listening to a tribe called quest record and saying, this isn't music. This is, you know, is it just that at every generational cycle, we don't recognize the new thing? Yes. I, yeah. And you know what? I'm not hating on it. I'm just saying I don't care to participate. Right. You know, uh, I'd rather cook be yeah. with my dog and yeah. make something out of a piece of wood. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, you know, what you describe is what you would rather do is engage with less technology and engage with the with the moment and the space in a way that's independent of flashing lights. Yeah. Um, I never really thought of it like that. They just happen to be the things I like. But uh, on the other hand, you know, when I'm mixing a record and I'm like really zoned on to what the signal flow inside the computer is. Yeah. I'm like, I feel like the first Tron where that little mm-hmm. thing went zipping mm-hmm. up and down the, the right angles and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's both. But it is just like going to a bar. Mm-hmm. And as most of the conversations that go on a bar are bullshit about nothing, mm-hmm. about ridiculous things. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of the conversations in social media are exactly the same thing. They're about things that are important to people that aren't important to me. And I'm not a kid. It's cool. Yeah. I'm down. And yeah, it's exactly what you said. Every generation looks back and says, oh, wow, I don't understand what these kids are about these days. And it's been that way forever. Well, I think you describe early on maybe part of your contribution rather than describing it as a specific aesthetic thing or a specific thing about the way the bass sits or the drum sit or whatever it was that you cared and that also you were committed to making the technology work in a way and solve a problem in a way that would elevate the music. I'm curious to hear you your thoughts on coming into contact now with kids as you teach who have grown up with an endless possibility of options with technology and who maybe are less aware of the value of those kinds of limitations. It's one of the harder things about teaching is to really get people down with like not, not to just say you have to do this because it's college and I say so, Mm -hmm. but to say, this is where we come from. And, Hmm. uh, you know, teaching recorded music at NYU, a lot of times I say, you know why we need to know about all this stuff that that happened 30, 40 years ago? Because it's NYU. Because it's a a very rarefied atmosphere of higher education where you leave no stone unturned. And you know as much as humanly possible as is to know about what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these kids grew up opening up the laptop and having everything right there. And they're making really cool music. They're making stuff that I never would be able to make, but it's really cool. But I think the same precepts about a piece of recorded music being engaging, song structures haven't changed that much. A great song hasn't changed that much. You know, you hear three notes and sometimes you say, wow, this is going to be a great song because they just did the right three notes mm-hmm. in the right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think of your records still because of the age that I was when they came out and what happened to me afterwards and what happened to music afterwards as being modern. I think of hearing On and On by Erica Badu and thinking, boy, that's a really modern sounding mix. Wow. And I, now I go back and listen to it and I think, oh, you know what? I can hear why it was modern in the moment. I can hear why it might not sound modern today, but I think of it as modern. However, we're sitting, the distance between now and when that was made is kind of like the distance between when you did that and Sgt. Pepper's. You know, it's funny. I think about when I was growing up and my consciousness really started in the mid 50s mid to late 50s and I listened to big band music and it sounded like the silliest oldest thing in the world at that point and it was only 15 years Mm -hmm. before that Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. here we're still loving Beatles records that were made 50 years ago I think that's it has something to say about the the power of pop music as it has evolved yet you know also sometimes we're listening to big band music too well, I think we've reached the end of history. That <laughs> I, I think that's what the internet did, is it shut down the linear development of th- this followed, that followed, that's that. That's right. That's right. And it's not just the internet, it's computers. Yeah. Uh, advancements used to be very linear. With computers doing all the shit work for you, advancement now is like a star bursting out in every conceivable direction. You learn one thing and it leads to a zillion things. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. What I find in the, the younger folks that I 
come into contact with and I work with is that they're much less precious about combining things in ways that I would say like, I don't know if that really goes like cooking in a radical way. The recipe is much more experimental in a way. Yeah. But you got to stay open and say, wow, does, is this a good song? And you know, a good, or is this a good record? A good record is a compelling performance of a great song. Uh, whether you like what he does or not, James Taylor could make a great record on a phone. Yes. Uh, so could Billie Eilish, I think. The fact that you bring this up a couple of times says to me that you have your antenna up and looking for exciting stuff no matter where it's coming from and that you're still kind of reading the room to see what's new I don't and look what's for cool. it, but when it finds me, I definitely don't shut it out. Yeah. I'm trying to think of uh, some other more modern stuff that I'm into. You know, I don't go out of my way to find music anymore. You have to understand, um, because my career for the better part of 40 years involved sitting in front of a pair of speakers, concentrating really, really hard on every little detail of what was coming out of those speakers. When I listen recreationally, I try to keep it like that, which is why um, I love it. I got an echo. I got several echoes and I can listen to radio stations from all over the world. And it's great because radio stations, again, are curators. There was a a different um, aspect of it involved back when because that was the only entertainment you had. Mm -hmm. But uh, now they do the same thing. But there's just a gazillion other things around yeah. to take your consciousness. But I do love listening. I, I have my favorite. KEXP in Seattle is great because you yeah. never know what you're going to hear. Yeah. WTMD and the old Towson College uh, radio station in Baltimore is great. There's, there's ones all over the place. Radio Nova. Radio you know? Nova. Yeah, I, yeah. I do know. I like yeah. that a lot. Yeah. I was looking at your most recent discography, and I understand you don't have a chance to produce records so much anymore because you're teaching and you mix and master in your own time. But producing a record is like a it's a much longer longer investment. But looking at the kinds of projects that have come to you in the last handful of years, one thing I think is interesting is that it's the jazzers that that, that came back it's to interesting. you. Interesting, yeah, right? You know, and in a sense, there is this conversation about what the influence of hip hop, soul, neo soul was on jazz. That's another conversation that happened and now you have guys like Theo Croker that come to you. I'm sure because of those records that you made. Well, Theo and I also have another connection through Dee Dee Bridgewater. Uh-huh. Um, I've known Dee Dee for a long time, and the way that I met Dee Dee was I produced China Moses is yeah. Dee Dee's daughter, and China is one of the most incredible singers I've ever known in yeah. my life, and she's working mostly in Europe. Yeah. So because of Theo's connection with Dee Dee, I think that's how that came about. Yeah. But also, um, you know, I'm a problem solver. So people know that. I love making jazz records. I love mixing jazz records for people. Like, wow, you want this to sound like really what it is. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, what a great concept. On the other side of the coin, Theo was not about that. And I think the most interesting stuff in jazz, and we know this that's going on right now, is jazz filtered through the ears of kids who grew up listening to hip hop. That's right. Um, You know, Kamasi. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many people doing so many interesting. yeah. Yeah, yeah, really interesting things. And challenging things. I mean, Theo's record was tremendously challenging to mix. Not a fuck you challenge, but it's like, wow, this is really, really hard. Yeah. Because he's doing things that most people just don't do, including two drummers a lot and lots of effects and lots of crazy stuff. A lot of the effects were printed. Yes. So, uh, you know, that was what I had to work with. So it was sort of like, okay, make this work. And that becomes a kind of a question for me. It's like, as a mixer, especially when you're getting records that you didn't, look at before they came to you how do i deal with stuff that's just got too many things there what's the process the process is i suffer (laughs) that i think that if someone recorded something on a record that they made it there so you would hear it and that's like just being and i've said this many times publicly but just being able to hear everything and it doesn't mean that everything's louder than everything else everything's in the right musical proportions but i can still make everything out is a lifetime of study Mm -hmm. so that's my first thing is like how am i going to arrange this puzzle so it's a pleasant listening experience all the holes all the areas in which we can hear are filled in in a really physically and emotionally pleasing way and realize the artist's vision at the same time. At the same time. Yeah. Do you visualize the sonic landscape? Do you see it as tall and short and left and wide and narrow? Sort of. You know, I I do when I talk about it, but I don't when I'm working. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
I visualize the sound field as a little like being out in space with objects in the space and some are farther away, some are closer, mm -hmm. some are brighter, some are darker. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Like, um, I think that's where the idea of professional audio gets really interesting, which is sound field, which is depth to the speakers. Mm -hmm. I mean, with two speakers, lousy stuff sounds like it's coming right out of the speaker itself. Really cool stuff sounds like there's a whole universe going back behind the speakers in there, and that's, that's the cool place. I mean, I love that you say that. Just being able to hear everything and find a space for everything is a lifetime of study. And it's true because we get so hung up, especially now that we're all opening our laptops and ha we have access to all the same plugins. I mean, you, I'm looking at the plugins that you're using. And once again, it's like, same, oh, it's the same yeah, stuff. Yeah. So it's not the stuff necessarily. Yeah. I mean, it may be, it's, it may be a combination. Uh, you know, I just do what I do. I mean, I'm very appreciative that people like it and want, me along for their ride there's a bunch of practitioners there's a lot of people who do stuff that's real cool that everybody does things a little bit differently you know audio is just like music it's like everybody can play the song very well but mm -hmm. they they do it a little bit differently and the people who have ascended are the people who just sort of have a way of doing it where people say oh, that's really cool i'd like to listen to that mm -hmm. were you in the period when you were making records that were, you know, more commonly played on the radio, when there was a radio to get the records played on, were you listening more to the stuff that was on the radio and trying to compete on that level? No, no, I never have done that. Although I have to say, I've realized something, uh, I realized something about 20, 25 years ago is that all my favorite old records, when I started re-listening to them 20 years later as somewhat of an adult, I realized that the way they sounded was not the way I had them from back when in my head. I had this vision in my head of the way I really emotionally felt that they sounded. But then when I went back and listened to them, I was like, wow, this really sounds like shit. But it, at the time, it felt so good. Sly records are a perfect example of that. Sonically, they're mm -hmm. fucking scary. But, <laughs> you know, at the time, it was like, wow, this is really hi-fi. This is cool. Same thing with Philadelphia International. I think mm -hmm. Joe Tarsia, do you know mm -hmm. who he is? He owned Sigma mm -hmm. Sound. And he was responsible for the sound of all many of the great Philadelphia International records. And at the time, that stuff was really hi-fi so I always want my strings to soar like that and then I go back and listen to them and it's like well the Little fine points of the sonics they're not soaring the way I thought they were soaring but the music's so dope I feel like they're soaring right. and at the time maybe it did I mean there's a lot of records that came out in the 90s that in my mind I would tell you are bone dry let me stop you for a second yeah. Joe Tarsia does not get enough props one of the most important audio practitioners, I think, in the history of pop music. Listen to Philadelphia records from the early 70s, mid-70s, and then listen to other records, and you'll see right away. And what do you think is going on? He just had a way of putting things together sonically that sounded really good. I'm sorry I interrupted. Oh, Go no, I'm, this is, again, a digression, just to say my memory of a lot of my favorite records from the 90s are that they were really dry, and I've been chasing that kind of presence and immediacy of those records. I go back and think, no, they were using the same stuff that they always used. They well, were using that's, the that's an interesting proposition. And it came into play in hip hop tremendously because when I first started doing hip hop in the late 80s, early 90s, reverb was a kiss of death. Yeah. It sounded like a Barbra Streisand record. And everybody was rejecting that totally. And to me, one of the great challenges was developing depth going back from the speakers, which is what you do with ambience generators. So how to give a, uh, an impression of layers of depth to a mix without having people say, oh, I hear reverb there, was a super, super big challenge. And it, was, it informed a lot of the things I still do to this day. Such as? Well, many of my ambiences are severely diminished in the high frequency. You don't want mm. the echo of something to have anywhere near the harmonic content of the thing itself because the echo is not an important thing. You're supposed to be focusing on the thing itself, and the echo is just a nice vibe thing that's happening. So you're rolling it off? Or? Yeah, 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 definitely. And, you know, low-pass your, your digital reverb so they don't sound so sizzly you know, delays to set something back in a mix, not so you hear hello, hello, 
but so the thing just doesn't sound like it's on the front level of the speakers. So you really, you add something and then you turn it way down just to make it seem like the thing you're listening to is about two feet back behind the speakers, but you don't hear bop, 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 bop. Mm-hmm. You said that you haven't mixed a record on a console and you don't know how many years, but when you made that transition, did you feel your process change and did you feel that the result changed? It was very hard at the beginning. Um, Plugins didn't get really good until 2011, 2012, around, I, I may be off in my years, but that's just my gut tells me that's when the possibilities were really good. So, plus I knew that the adjustment, I, I, 15 years ago, I said, you should be a better in the box mixer. You do the other thing fine. So I took the challenge of getting better at it. And it was a lot more work at the beginning, but now everything sounds so much better. You know, it's... It's not easy, you know, it's still work, but but the tools are there and the tools are really, really good. Only because I saw you doing this when I walked in, I want to talk about mastering because a big conversation that I think has been happening among me and my friends who are making records or tracks or whatever is why master anything now when it doesn't get played on a CD in the same way, it doesn't get sequenced in the same way, it shows up in a digital distribution platform that's going to sort of normalize all the volume anyway. What do you see as the role of mastering? Uh, you, you just step it up a level or two or three. Mm-hmm. Good mastering will make the music seem much closer to you. Like That's part of what limiting is, is really good for. Everybody mm-hmm. says, oh, I hate limiting. I hate well, I love it when all of a sudden music doesn't sound far away. It sounds like it's right up in your chest and to me that's one of the things that you try to do with the immediacy of mastering you know uh different streaming platforms will turn it down Mm -hmm. but still as a piece of itself you know mastering enhances the detail the things that might have been too quiet to hear before but because you're focusing everything so much more you can hear a lot of the low level detail i've said that about compression for a long time compression you know, it, it's there's a lot of reasons for compression, but it's not just to keep things from getting too loud. For me, compression is cool is because it brings up the low level detail. It doesn't actually turn it up, but it keeps the loud stuff from being so loud. So all the real cool inside quiet stuff, you can hear much more apparently. But if you're mixing a project that you know you're going to master... Do you keep those two elements Yes, I keep separate? them separate. I just try to make the mixes as good as I can. And then you try to t- bump it up a level yeah. from there. Yeah, step back, see it objectively. Yeah. I saw you while you were mastering this one track earlier today force yourself and recognize that moment when you were starting to get fatigued. Oh, yeah. Yeah, listen, the, and I, just because this uh, project came in and dribs and drabs, uh, you can't, linger too long when you're mastering you get lost in the weeds it's really good to work quickly Um, and intuitively yeah and and because once you start listening to something for too long you just lose your bearings that becomes the norm rather than listening to it objectively yes so i'm struck by the fact that you have all this music education and yet the thing that ultimately became your career while it did absorb and accommodate all of your musical background really wasn't the stuff that you went to school for. Well, I will say that, and I I say this in school all the time, is musicianship is the thing that has made everything else possible in my career. Yes. Not because I was a good player. Oh, you could do this. No, the whole idea of how things sound and how music is put together has made everything else possible in my career. I think it's really important for people, if they want a career in making records, to know as much about music as they can. What do you think in general about the idea of having a career in making records today? It's a completely different landscape, and that's one of the reasons why I don't feel like at the Clive Davis Institute that I'm teaching a lie is because 50% of our emphasis is on entrepreneurship. Hmm. That's not what I teach, but uh, entrepreneurship accompanies every other word that we use, performer, producer, 
communicator, entrepreneurship is really big. And, you know, Mark is a big part of that. What's interesting is the multi-generational aspect of the, I mean, I have friends at NYU and I can see that the range of generational and experiential faculty is, is really good. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a testament to the people who started the thing because yeah. Nick Sansano, who runs a production department, who's an old friend of mine, um, you know, we do things a little differently. And at first I was like, wow, we're telling the students one thing and somebody's telling the students another thing. And he said, that's great. In what way do you see that you're different? Because I want the students to see a lot of, see that there are 175 different ways of good. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's realistic. And anybody who's a musician, and particularly, for example, in the jazz community, you know, there's all different flavors of good. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that people are exposed to all those different things so they can make their own version of good, mm -hmm. which will add another number to that 175 versions. Not to focus or be dark on it, but, you know, one question, because so many of my friends have become teachers and so many of the people I talk to have become teachers is, you know, was there also an element of seeing the writing on the wall and saying the record, the budgets aren't the same, the work isn't going to be the same? Um, that's a really good point. And can I curse? Sure. Of course. Shit just found me at the yeah. right time in my career. You know, I started teaching when I was in my mid fifties and that was just like the right point for me to be tired of doing everything else. I got kind of burned out. There was um, a bunch of stuff happened personally in my life in the mid aughts through the end of the aughts. And it just happened to coincide with me kind of being burned out from 15 years of 80 hour work weeks. Um, so teaching just found me at the right time. I've been really lucky. I've never done anything career wise because it was strategic. Mm -hmm. I did it because I was incredibly passionate about certain things as I am about teaching. So in a way I thank the universe because I feel like I've led somewhat of a charmed life and mm -hmm. that my passion has been the thing that has directed me and directed things towards me rather than me saying, well, you really should, you know. 30 years ago, everyone had a, a duplicating station in a closet in the studio because it was a profit center. You had 12 cassette machines and you charged people for that. I never really thought like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if someone was opening a studio, I said, yeah, you should have a dupe station in the closet. But other than that, right. you know. And when it came to your own career, did you think about hour by hour? Did you think about charging Per project, per, I mean, did that affect the way you... I sort of had to figure it out. Yeah. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I started mixing was I was just looking at the hours I was putting in, tracking things, and there was a certain point where I just kind of started telling people, look, I'm only mixing and producing these days. Mm -hmm. So that's when stuff started coming to me. So you kind of made space for it and it arrived. Well, I guess that was strategic. I guess uh -huh. that was strategic. No matter how much you're getting paid an hour, the difference between that and what a top level mixer makes for doing a mix yeah. it may take a couple of days. Back in the day, especially with analog, big R&B records that were 64 tracks plus with lots of background vocals, you'd spend one day just working your way through the background vocals, mm -hmm. um, balancing that stuff out. So I guess that was strategic. But I was also really fascinated by it. I'm like, oh, this is real cool. And I'm, I'm tired of sitting there waiting for people to get inspired. Well, that's a thing, right? I mean, that yeah. goes back to this, this thing you say about watching somebody try to find the right note on the keyboard and say, well, how many hours of my life am I going to watch somebody and, a, and, and a lot of guys would just bring a book or watch television. Yeah. It's really dishonest. It's dishonest to your clients. And I was always straight up with my clients. Yeah. It's like, we're here to work. I'm here to work. And if you guys want to fuck around in the back, that's great. But when someone's done with one thing, I'm, I'm going to be walking into the back saying, who's next? Mm -hmm. What do we do next? It's just my ethic. And part of it was coming up doing television music. Yeah. I learned efficiency in the studio. Yes. Well, I completely relate to that. You know, I still do that. That's, yeah. that's how I make my living is doing that now. Yeah. Good people are all about that. And when you see people being kind of aimless in the studio, it's always a head scratcher. It's like, wow, they don't get it. Do you feel like over the years with, with all the different kinds of projects that you, and people that you worked with, you start to develop a sense just personally of if the ethic work ethic is there or are there the, oh, those? Oh, that was a great big criteria as to whether I take a production project yeah. or not. I'm not going to name names, but you know my discography. And I, I suffered through some people with some very unusual work habits. And 
Uh, I have walked at you times. Have. Yeah. I just can't. That's not what I want to spend my energy doing is waiting for someone to show up. Right. I mean, there are notorious stories of sessions that start in the middle of the night that they Don't won't name show names. I won't. But this is what we're talking about. Yeah. That- and, and it's sort of like two things. It's like my personal energy is precious. Not that it's special. But it's just that's what I'm here to do is move forward with people and help people move forward. The other thing is it's kind of dishonest to your client. If you're, you know, it's their money. That's what they didn't understand back then very well. And mm-hmm. um, part of my job is to look out for the things that you are not necessarily looking out for, nor as an artist should you really be thinking about those things. But trust me, I'm here because that's my job. Right. Although there's more and more self-produced. I mean, the, the, if the question of what does a mastering engineer do is like starting to enter in the conversation, the other one is what does a producer do? And I think in part it's because the labels aren't behaving in the way they used to. And so you're not responsible to anybody to deliver the thing. Uh, you know, what a producer does ultimately is make sure the record comes out really cool. Yeah. It's also... You want to do it in budget. Yep. Uh, but you know what? It doesn't matter how much money you save. If the record's not really dope, it doesn't matter that you that you brought it in for not that much money. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I still remember budgets mm-hmm. in the multi-hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. range. And that's what you needed at that point to make a record because the technology wasn't there. Now mm-hmm. you, you don't need it. You can make a record in your living room. Yeah. And if you're really slick and think a lot, you can make a very good record in your living room. Mm-hmm. You just have to think. Yeah, and maybe there is something to be said for that sort of outside you know, entity. Rock and roll was always made by people doing things wrong. Now I mm. listen to Beatles records, yeah. and it's like they were really fucking with the gear. Everything yeah. is incredibly saturated. Yes. And it's funny, I just can't do that myself. It's not how I do things. My records still sound big and full and fat, but in a really different way. But, you know, rock and roll is from people just doing things wrong. And when um, in one of the weekly sophomore production classes in the year-long class I teach, uh, I talk about voicings. We talk about arranging. Mm -hmm. And I sit at a piano and play them uh c f g c mm-hmm. with good voice leading and then i play it with parallel mm-hmm. chords just mm-hmm. and i said everybody what does that sound like they said it sounds like old rock and roll hmm. i'm like yeah now do you think that they did that because mm-hmm. they thought it was cool I don't think so. I think that's all. They figured out, okay, I can play this chord here. I can play that chord there. They weren't, they didn't know about voice leading. Mm -hmm. And that's how the wrong things became right. That's right. Well, and because interestingly, I've found myself in plenty of situations where I play things that I think are nicer and I get accused of uh, being a little too fancy. Yeah, you know? and and really often on the piano, real good voice leading to me makes it sound like Bach, yeah. like classical music. Yeah. Um, so yeah, wrong has become right, yes. and we love it. Yeah, we love it. So what do you think, based on your discography and the work that you do, would surprise people about you or your you know your aesthetics, your taste? What would surprise people about you? I'm a mean cook. <laughs> I'm serious. What do you make? Everything. Mostly Mediterranean style stuff, but I, I hate recipes. You know, it's just like with music, I prefer to play a little bit more improvisatory music mm-hmm. than other kinds often, but good tight funk always does it for me as mm-hmm. well. But yeah, I don't cook from recipes. Um, I don't know. No, you know, I'm just a guy trying to do the right thing for people. Bob Power, thank you so much, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. There he was, my friends, Bob Power. He's a mean cook. No recipes. Can you dig it? I knew that you could. I'll be back again soon with another deep dive. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.